0: Let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to the epistle to the Galatians, chapter 1. And our study tonight, we continue with verses 11 through 24. And in this part of Scripture, we find the Apostle Paul defending his teachings concerning the gospel of grace and also how that he had received the authority to preach the gospel. And in the process of that defense, we have this extended section here that runs down from verse number 11 and chapter 1 all the way into the second chapter and we're given here a little bit of the history of Paul's life some of what he was before he was converted to Christ and then what happened in his conversion then we have a little bit more about what he did immediately after for the few years after that he was converted to Christ and this is a defense that's necessary because of what had happened in the Galatian church since Paul left there uh, after he had left those churches, and in between that time and the writing of this letter, there had come some people from Judea, some Jews, that came to the Galatian churches and began to teach them a perverted gospel. It wasn't the pure gospel of the grace of God, and they disputed what Paul had taught that sinners are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, Paul taught that it was not necessary for people to be circumcised in order to be saved, and that's what the Judaizers were telling the Galatian people, that their salvation was not complete, that they had not been justified with God because they were Gentiles that needed to be circumcised. And so what they had done was to mix works with grace, whereas Paul was teaching a pure gospel of grace alone And Paul said that what they taught was a corruption of the gospel. And that was such a serious breach that he pronounced what we've called a Christian curse on them. He said in verses 8 and 9, Let those false teachers be accursed. Let them be anathema. And that's very, very strong language, and I've noted this on several occasions. We really need to hear what the Apostle Paul says, because it is so strong, because this really has the meaning of let them go to hell, because they have taught such a wicked, perverted gospel. Well, after that, Paul proceeded to tell them about the source of his teachings, that this was not his gospel, not something that he had made up, but it was God's gospel, and that he didn't receive his learning from men, but... What he was teaching was given to him directly from God. Now, we look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 11, and I don't think that I'm going to read this, the entire uh, section here. And so, unfortunately, it means I'm going to have to stop in the middle of a thought. But that's what I'll do because we'll take up all of these verses at some point or another. But he says in verse number 11, I certify you brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, that how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now this evening, I want to consider just a part of verse number 15 going to look at two phrases in that verse and we're going to talk about that for a few minutes but before I do I I want to just go over a little bit about the previous material that we discussed Uh, this is background information that really gets us into the flow of what happens in verse number 15 and so these are first of all the essential postulates from Paul's conversions uh, conversion. These are postulates that have to be true or else the rest of Paul's arguments are unconvincing and they're of little value. And so these postulates are interwoven throughout these verses. And the first one is that the gospel is not his invention. Now verse number 11 he says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. So that's the first postulate. It's not his invention. Secondly, the gospel is not the product of tradition. Verse number 12 says, For I neither received it of man. He didn't get this from the church or from anyone else. Then thirdly, third postulate is the gospel is of divine origin. He says, Neither was I taught it but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if those postulates are true, then they verify that Paul is teaching the truth of the Word of God. And so what he does here to show that is to methodically retrace the steps of his conversion and how he establishes or is established as an apostle of Christ and that he does speak the truth. So this is God's gospel and he is God's minister. And so if that's true, what he says can't be disputed. Now next, Paul proceeds with that argument, and these are the events. He starts with the events that were prior to his conversion. And this was more or less a reminder of what they already knew. Uh, Paul's reputation was well known. His life before becoming a Christian was frightening to people that were Christians. And that's because he was zealous for the Jews' religion. He was was taught by their rabbis, and Christian people were afraid of that persecution that he inflicted upon them. And really, Paul, in his former religion, was just pretty much like the Judaizers. I mentioned last week that we're going to get into a little bit later on about what these Judaizers actually believed, and some of it, most of it is very close, very close to what we believe and teach, but they are often an an essential part of the gospel, and that error is enough to condemn everything that they taught. So we're going to talk about that. That's going to be a few weeks from now. But Paul was like those Judaizers in this sense, at least, that he was one of the greatest uh, proponents of, of circumcision. Now, these were people that were taught by tradition, and they were taught by memorization. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is where we find some of the main verses, really the main verse uh, for the command that all good Jewish parents would abide by, and that was that they would teach their children the Word of God. And there's nothing wrong with that command. I only wish that we were half as good as the Jews were about teaching their children about God's Word. Uh, we'd certainly be far ahead if we would. But if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 6... This is the command uh, for parents towards their children. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Verse number 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way. And when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. Now let me talk to you for just a minute about those verses because they're very important considering how Paul got his, had his training and his upbringing. Verse number seven says that devotion to God is to be taught diligently to the children. Now, the Jews knew how to show their love for God. And the way that they did was to keep God's commandments. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is something that all Christians ought to do as well, is that we show our love to God because we keep his commandments. That's how you show that you are a Christian, by obedience. And then you'll notice in verse number 8 that they were told to bind the laws of God upon their hands and on their head. And the Jews took that literally. And like we would tie a string around our finger in order to remember something, what they would do is they would uh, tie parts of Scripture to their left arm and their left hand, and they would put them in little leather boxes, and they would tie them around their head and put, put that on their foreheads. Now, you can you can still see that today in Israel if you go to the western wall you'll find the orthodox jews are there and they're wrapping themselves in leather straps and they wear the boxes on their foreheads and they put all this paraphernalia on as they're there at the western wall and they go to pray there then in verse number nine it says you shall write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates and you can also see that today in israel Write them upon the post of thy house. Now, interestingly, the word Hebrew, the, the word in Hebrew, therefore, doorpost is the word mezuzah. and so the Jews what's put what's called a mezuzah on the sides of the doors of their houses. So they put scriptures inside of them, and the scripture that they put inside are these verses, Deuteronomy six four through nine, and uh, we had a little bit of experience with that because in our hotel. All of the hotel doors had a little mezuzah on the side, and those have scriptures in them. And on the mezuzah, there is a Hebrew letter that stands for El Shaddai. And so every time that they entered the house or when they left the house, they were reminded of God's word and of God, the great God who, who is their, who is their Lord. And, and that just shows you the extreme devotion to God that they have, great reverence for God. Now, it's too bad they really didn't understand what that was all about because they they took that as a way in order to be pleasing to God and they could earn their salvation by keeping these kinds of commands. So that's the way that Paul was brought up. And he wasn't just the average Jewish child. I mean, he's one that wanted to know everything there was to know about his religion. So he wasn't content just to know what was in the Torah, the books of the law that Moses gave. He also wanted to know all of the oral traditions and all the other things that were added. And so he became a Pharisee. And he lived, as he said, according to the most strict and orthodox of that sect. So like them, it turns out that he hated Christ. He hated anybody that was a Christian. He was sworn to uphold Jewish traditions. And so he became a persecutor of Jewish Christians. And he became very good at it. With all the vim and vigor that he could put into it, he hunted down Christians and drugged them out of their houses, took them to prison, and even uh, caused them to be killed. Now, the point of Paul relating all of this in verses 13 and 14 is to show that there's only one way that he could have come out of that religion. There's only one way because he wasn't easily persuaded. This was a faith that was ingrained in him since he was a child. He was an excessive supporter of, of all of these laws that the Pharisees had put in place, especially that of of circumcision and those kinds of traditions. And he believed more strongly than anyone that the way that he could be right with God was to keep God's commandments, do good works. And that's the way that he would be justified before God. And so the only thing that could move him away from all of those traditional beliefs was a miracle. Nobody but God could convince him of this, and only the gospel could change him. And that's what happened to him. That's what happened. And before, again, he was like those Judaizers. And all of a sudden, God came along and knocked out the props of his religious system. It all falls out from underneath of him. And then he has radically changed. And God turned him into a preacher of the gospel. Now, here's the big question, the really big question. How does that happen? How does that happen that somebody is headed in one direction as hard as he can go? absolutely firm and assured of the way that he's going is right. How does a person headed in this direction stop and get turned around to head in the opposite direction? And that's where we move into verses 15 and 16. Here he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now tonight, what I want to talk to you about, and I'm just going to get into it, just a little taste of it tonight, and that is the irresistible plan for Paul's conversion. You see, Paul was not going to convert to Christianity. I mean, you're talking about a thought that never crossed his mind. No way he's going to do this. So he's on the road to Damascus, and he's going to search out Christians and put them in prison, but God had other Plans. Now, notice how that Paul relates the information. You know, he starts off, he says, I persecuted the church of God. And then the thought follows that he says, I profited in the Jews' religion. I was zealous of the tradition of my fathers. And then he says, But. There are a lot of times when Paul is on a roll and he's giving out all this information, and then all of a sudden he throws a butt in there. And you know, when Paul says, but, what's going to follow is a vision of God. What's going to follow is something that magnifies the grace of God. So the next thing you're going to see after Paul says, but, is you're going to see God. And the second part of this thought is a, is a radical change from the first. Because it doesn't matter where you're going, and it doesn't matter what you think, and it doesn't matter how headstrong you are. When God comes, it will change. There is no resisting God. His plans are different from your plans. There's no resisting him. And you know why? Because he doesn't care about your plans. He doesn't care at all about your plans. It's God's plan that's important. And God always works according to his own plan. Now, let's take a look here at God's plans for Paul. And the first part of this, this is so good. It's always a pleasure to talk about this. But here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening. And that is the conception of God. Paul was conceived by the Holy Spirit, how did he get saved? It says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. Now, let me say, first of all, that Paul is not going to make a point here about physical birth. Paul was born just like all people are born. That's not the point here. The point is the separation to the call of apostleship, which in turn is owing to his selection by God's grace for salvation. He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. Now, where are we going to find a clearer statement in the Word of God about God's sovereign grace? I mean, where are we going to find a place that, that's more convincing that the salvation of sinners is a predetermined prerogative of God? Where are you going to find a place that so clearly tells us that salvation comes according to God's will and not our will, that it's not dependent on us, but it's dependent on what God does? He says, when it pleased God. Now folks, when you get here, you're, you're, you're not entering this territory looking for a few New Testament scriptures to try to dig this truth out. When you get here, you are in the scope of the entire Bible. Now you see how God's word from top to bottom, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about God's sovereign, predetermined plan. It's always God's pleasure. So all that we need to do, we go back and we look for this in the Word of God. And I said it's not hard to find because we find that God chose Abraham. What was Abraham doing? Well, Abraham was a heathen. Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees and knew nothing about God. He was worshiping idols. And God just went and called Abraham, told him to go someplace else and called him, to, called him out for his service. And Abraham went. God called Jacob. You know that story? God called the nation of Israel, God called Moses. There was Moses. He didn't even know the name of God. God appeared to him in the burning bush and said, Moses, this is what you're going to do. God called Joshua, God, God called Samuel, and God called David. You get into the New Testament. Oh Isaiah I forgot about him. That's a that's another calling and all the others as well. Jeremiah, we'll get to him in a minute. But you get into the New Testament and you find there God called John the Baptist. What does the Bible say about him? That while he was in his mother's womb, the Holy Spirit was in him, and his mother leapt, or or the child, rather, leapt in his mother's womb when she heard the news that Mary was pregnant with the Savior. And then you go on, and, of course, God chose Paul. We have that here in these verses. Jesus said to the apostles, I choose you. And so you just go on and on with this and you find this is always God's method. It's always been that way. God's the one who chooses. You can't miss it. For instance, you go to Joshua chapter 2 and there you have the story of Rahab. And you wonder, why did Rahab save the spies? Why did she believe in Jehovah God when there was a whole city there filled with people that heard the exact same information that she knew about Israel? Why did she become a believer? And where do you find Rahab? You find her in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I mean, do you think that the genealogy of Christ was a product of randomness? Do you think people just got into Christ's ancestry by accident? Well, of course not. Rahab was saved. She was saved from destruction in Jericho when everyone else was was killed. And that's because she was chosen by God. How did Ruth get from Moab to Israel? How did she get into the ancestry of Christ? God put her there. It's the only way she could get there. God's the one that put her there. And you could go through the whole genealogy of Christ and say, well, how did all those people get there? Well, God puts them there. It's always because of God's divine prerogative. So from Genesis to Revelation, God has his people, and it's clearly evident that this happens before they're born. Listen to what Jeremiah, I mean, this is in Jeremiah, and he sounds just like the Old Testament equivalent of the Apostle Paul. God spoke to Jeremiah, and he said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Sounds to me like there's a whole lot that's going on before we're born. How about Paul in Romans chapter 9, when he gives us the consummate scripture there on God's choice of his people to salvation. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 9 for just a moment. We'll read this together. And I want you to consider the context of what Paul is saying here. Uh, He's just finished up chapter number 8, and he's very clear about who does what in salvation. So he starts in Romans 9, verse number 1. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory, and listen, and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is all. blessed, God bless forever, amen. Now there you see the exclusivity of this one little nation called Israel. Who is it that gets the promises? Who gets to know Jehovah God in his glory? Who does God make his covenant with? Who is it that receives the law? Who is taught to serve God? And from whom did Jesus Christ, the Messiah, come? Now, you think of how many millions of people lived and died during Israel's history and all the nations that were around the world, and yet it's one chosen nation that has all the advantages. Verse number 6 says, "...not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called." Now you see God's getting even more particular here. Not everybody in the nation of Israel is actually of God. God has a certain people that he's chosen out through a certain line. So God's very particular Abraham is called the father of many nations. That's what his name means, but there's only one nation that was chosen by God. Verse number 8 says, That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now there we see there are more scriptures related to birth. Here's Rebekah that has two children, Jacob and Esau. One of them gets separated to God from birth, and the other one's left to go his own way. God had a way for Jacob even taking away the right of primogeniture from Esau and giving it to Jacob and that was unheard of in the Jewish way of life so Jacob was chosen this way and do you remember what happened when he blessed his sons that Joseph came and brought his children to receive the blessing and he brought Manasseh and Ephraim and he brought them up to Jacob and he was old and Couldn't see very well. And so Joseph guided Manasseh, who was the firstborn, towards the hand to receive the blessing. And Jacob refused that. And he said, no. He said, Ephraim is the one who's going to receive the blessing. And there again, you see the right of primogeniture taken away. And it's given to Ephraim rather than Manasseh. That was God's choice. And you go down through history and you see how those nations developed. And Ephraim was the one that became the greater. So how does this happen? Well, God, God decides this. And now we come to the Apostle Paul, and he, he reiterates this so plainly that we can't miss it. Paul says he was separated from his mother's womb. Now let me rock the world of the skeptics a little bit here and tell you that the word separated comes from the same root word that we get predestination. Predestination. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 that we are predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will, that's the same root word as we find here in Galatians. So Paul is talking about nothing less here than divine predestination and divine prerogative. Well, how do we know that? Well, we look at this and we say, well, how could Paul have anything to do with it? I mean, do you see anything in the story of Paul and his conversion that looks like his decision? I mean, we don't have to be seminary professors to figure this one out. It was planned by God before Paul was born that he would be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I talked a little bit about that when we looked at effectual calling and, uh, as we were studying verse number 6. And I said then that what you can't do is that you can't cut predestination off as being only to service. And that's one of the common arguments that you have on Romans 8.29, that it's to service and not to salvation. And we're all familiar with the verse, Romans 8.29 says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, you're not going to find anybody that denies that predestination is in the Bible. I mean, that's, I don't care what side you're on, it's plain, the word's here. We have predestinate in the Bible. And so the way to get rid of this, some people think, is to say, well, what Paul means is that the predestination is to service. It's to conformity to Christ. And indeed it is. In fact, in Ephesians 2, verse number 10, it says that we are saved and then we are ordained to good works. But as we look here at Galatians one fifteen. There's no mistaking that you're not going to get to conformity until you first go through salvation. And so if Paul says, I was predestined or I was separated from my mother's womb to service, then he had to get predestined to salvation first, didn't he? See, Romans eight can't mean service anyway because that verse says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. It doesn't say what he foreknew. What is service? Or we could discount that and say, well, he means sir. He didn't say what. He says whom. That's people. That's a person for whom he did predestinate. So what happens then is service becomes secondary to salvation. And I don't think there's anybody here tonight that would say, well, that's not right. First you, get, you serve God, and then you get saved. Well, of course not. We all know this. We get saved, then we serve God. That's the divine order. Galatians 2, 8 through 10, which we'll talk a little bit more last week, and I just read there, is that that shows us the order. You get saved by God's grace, and then you're ordained to good works. This is exactly what Paul is saying. So from Genesis to Revelation, we see this. So what we have in Galatians 1, 15 is this exact order, that God predestines first. And we're told when it happens, we, we know it's before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1, 4, and also 2 Thessalonians two thirteen. So it's not out of order to say what you will become after you're saved is included in the, in the germ of that original election and predestination of God. Now, then obviously you have to be born. That happens in time. You get born, and when you're in that delivery room and you're born... Paul makes it clear your life has been ordered by God. God has already determined about who will be a Christian and who is not. Now, he doesn't share that information with us, and we can't, certainly can't deny that it's true. It happened in the case of the apostle Paul. So all the means that are necessary to get you to the point in your life where you receive Christ as Savior is put into play by God. What he does, he has all the Bibles that are printed that people need to use, and then there are preachers that he gives the gospel to preach, and then there are Christian workers that go out. There's all of this preaching, and ordinarily, that's how God does it. He uses human instrumentality to bring people to salvation. But as we look at the Apostle Paul, there's a little twist on his conversion because the thing that he's trying to point out here is there was no human involved. And that doubly nails down Paul's point. He says he never listened to a preacher. He never got anything from a Christian worker. But he did get the word, didn't he? He got the living word. Because Jesus Christ himself spoke to him. And Jesus Christ is the living word. So Paul was ordained from his mother's womb. And then when the time was right, Paul was smitten. And then he was called, to, he was called into his apostleship. Now, what we have then here is some people will say, well, that's a special case. There's nobody else like this. We can't find any examples of how God works like this. He doesn't work with us this way. Well, is that right? Well, again, who was it that spoke to Abraham and who spoke to Jacob and who spoke to Moses? Who spoke to Samuel? And Samuel responded, here am I. You know, there's a little notation in that story about Samuel that can't, be put there by accident. In 1 Samuel 3, 7, now before I give it to you, you know the story of Samuel, that his mother dedicated him to the Lord. She took him to the tabernacle. She gave him to Eli and she said, this boy is yours and he's going to serve the Lord. And so Samuel was there and he's asleep one night. He's just a child and God speaks. And Samuel had no idea it was. He thought it was Eli calling him. And so he went to ask Eli, did you call me? Eli said, no, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. And he hears God speak again. He gets up and he goes, ask Eli, what do you want? And Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. Third time he comes back. God speaks to him and comes to Eli. Eli says, stay still and let's see if that's God speaking to you. Now, the interesting thing about this, here is Samuel, a young man, and this is what the Bible says about Samuel. 1 Samuel 3, 7. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Neither was the Lord, the word of the Lord, revealed unto him. So there's Samuel. He has no idea who's even calling him. He doesn't even know the Lord yet. And God called him. Now, you know another interesting thing in the very same chapter? You go down a few verses, you come to verse number 20, and it says, And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. He's just a child, didn't even know the Lord, and God spoke to him, then he knew the Lord. Now, that's, that's a pretty clear thing here. Then we follow that along, and we see how God spoke to Samuel, and he said, now here's what, what I would have done here. I, I've chosen one of the sons of Jesse to be the king over Israel. And he said, you need to get busy and get down there to Jesse's house and anoint this person to be king. So... Samuel went, and Jesse paraded out all of his sons, seven of them, and he was convinced that the first one who came out was the right one. And he said, surely this is the one that God has chosen. No. Second one comes out, no. Third, no. Fourth, no. Fifth, no. Sixth. no. Every time God says, no, 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 that's not the one. Until this ruddy little shepherd boy named David comes along. They call him in, and God said, that's him. You anoint him. And poor little David there, he said, what? What's going on? And Samuel says, you're going to be king, buddy. I'm going to anoint you as the king. Well, do you see God's divine prerogative here? God chooses who he wants. God does what he wants. So this is how Samuel uh, anointed David to be the king. So God spoke to a lot of people like this. Paul is not a special case. God, God chose a lot of people directly. And you think about that. Well, what about you? How did God get to you? When you heard the gospel, wasn't that God speaking to you through the preached word? And wasn't it the Holy Spirit doing his work of regeneration in your heart? What did you do? I mean, what part did you have in that? Did you set it in motion? No, this is God at work. This is his will. And you're always brought into conformity to his will. So... Why would anybody ever claim it's me, 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 me? I'm the one that decided. God tried to get me, and I said, okay, and I let him have me. You know, most of the time what you find in Scripture is the opposite, that people are saying, why me? Why me? And so we wonder, what's happened in our theology that now people are saying, I chose God, and God is privileged to have me? He's privileged that I was willing to accept him. And I think you already know I don't even like the terminology that we accept Christ. Because it's not biblical terminology. Now maybe I'm a stickler on that. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit too maybe I'm crazy or something. But I couldn't find in the scripture one time where it says to accept Christ. It always says, receive him. Here's what Paul says in First Thessalonians two thirteen. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which, listen, effectually worketh in you, also also in you that believe. You see that? You receive the word of God. Colossians 2, 6 says, as ye have therefore received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And in Galatians, here in, in, the, in the book that we're studying, verse number 2, Chapter three verse two. This only would I have learn would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. It's always received. Receive the gospel. First Corinthians 15.1 says, "Received how that Christ died for your sins. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, it says, Receive the Holy Ghost. Acts 10.47 says, "Received." I'm sorry, receive. 1 Corinthians 15.3 is, "Received how Christ died for your sins. And Acts 10.47 says, Receive the Holy Ghost. So you look that up, and you see received, 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 all of the time. Now, if you're good at this, and you have a concordance, or you have a computer, it's real easy to do. Look up the word accept. And you know what the word accept, how it comes out when we find that related to salvation? It says, we receive Christ. God accepts us. Now, that's a subtle difference there. Maybe you think I'm being making too fine of a point, but folks, that's biblical terminology. So maybe you get confused about this. Well, I, I can tell you this, that your decision to choose God is God's work. It's not yours. And at the same time, There's nobody that comes to God kicking and screaming because God drugged them and they didn't want to come. It's not the way that it works. We want to come, and I'm never going to deny that we decide to come. We do, and we want to come, but the reason that we do is because God latched hold on us and drew us with his cords of love. That's why we come. This is what Jesus says in John six forty four, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's how you got there. That's how the apostle Paul got there. He was drawn by the living word, and so are you. And the only difference between us and him is the form in which it comes, and that is someone gave you the gospel of Jesus Christ. So someone gave you from the written word, the same message that Paul received from the living word, the, the one who spoke to him directly. So it's same word, just different form. And it's because God was pleased to do it. Now, let's listen to some other scriptures here. Luke twelve thirty two. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's the Father's good pleasure. Ephesians 1, 5 says, Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, how? According to the good pleasure of his will, Ephesians one nine, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, Philippians two thirteen. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Second Thessalonians one eleven. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfil all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Your faith comes from God by his determined will. So we're talking here about the sovereign pleasure of God. This is what Paul says, and we thank God for that because so much of the world has been passed over and left to inevitable judgment. And there's none of us that can deny that because you look at it for 1,500 years of Israel's history, nobody had the gospel but them. The whole world was populated with people, and the only ones that knew the living God was this one small little nation called Israel. Deuteronomy 7 says, Moses talking to the children of Israel, he says, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for were you are the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's sovereign choice. That's what Paul's talking about. And so when it came time, God reversed Paul's direction. Nobody, nobody could take this hardened Pharisee and turn him around God had to do it, and God did it. And when God was pleased to do it, he did. And if Paul had his way, there was no way. He wasn't going to become a Christian. It was when God changed him. So that's Paul's conception. He says from his mother's womb, he was chosen by God, and he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in his conversion. Now, I'm going to stop with that, and and next time... We're going to come back and we'll talk a little bit more about God's irresistible plan. There's a few more things that we can look at here. So praise God for this. He turns lost sinners around. God's the one who does that. He's the one that reverses our direction. And just like with the apostle Paul, there isn't anybody that could do that, but God. You can't do it. Only God can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that we learned from your word. It's Seems so clear to us, and indeed it is, by just reading the word and accepting what it says. That, um, we see what you did in Paul's life. We see what you did in the lives of so many people in the Old Testament times, the New Testament times, and over and over again and over again, we see how according to your divine and sovereign will that you have brought us to salvation. We thank you so much for that, Lord, because we know that we could never choose you on our own. We never would want you on our own. It's only when you open our hearts to this that we can see this, see you, and believe. Thank you for that, Lord. Bless our people. We thank you for everyone who's here tonight. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's all.